0: Well, good afternoon. Salam, I think. Yes, Salam. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's a real privilege uh, to be with you. I'd just like to uh, say thank you to, uh, to the fellowship here. Uh, we've been meeting with you for a few months, and it, uh, it really has been a blessing to listen and, and myself. So thank you for your uh, friendship and, uh, and your encouragement. Uh, uh, services are different here, aren't they? Last Sunday we were, we were having a barbecue in that lovely garden and, and uh, coffee and uh, it, was, it was great. And I thought, this is exciting being at Rotherham. And then I went home and I, I found a snake tangled up in my, uh, in my protective netting for the uh, strawberries. And uh, we didn't know, I think it was a grass snake, but uh, it could have been an adder. But uh, my wife said, this is not a fisherman's tail. It was three foot long. It took us an hour and a half to get the thing to get the thing out. So, so uh, it's interesting worshipping at Rotherham Evangelical <laughs> Church. There we are, there we are. For to us... A child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do love you and we do pray that you would speak to us today, Father, uh, through uh, this beautiful psalm. Uh, Please, Father, uh, we don't want our heads to be filled with knowledge. Uh, We want our hearts to be changed. Uh, Speak to us so that we would love you more. Speak to us, Father, so that we would worship you more. Before we ask these things, in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, this is, I've got to get used to this technology. Uh, <laughs> Psalm 29, uh, the King of all splendour. Uh, you know, the book of Psalms, it's the song book. If you have a cheap Bible, one without the maps and the concordances in the back, and you get a cheap Bible and you open it up in the middle, then you'll be in the book of Uh, psalms. Um, uh, They were written about 3,000 years ago. They're real songs written by different people, uh, a lot of them by King David, and the Hebrew people actually sang them. Uh, Just like the songs today, they're written in a a kind of range of uh, genre and, and, and styles. There are sad psalms, and they were probably set to sad music. Uh, there were happy uh, psalms and they'd be set to happy music there'd be depressing psalms that would be set to the ancient equivalent of uh, uh, James Blunt or Leonard Cohen and if you don't know who they are well you're less cool than I am Um, and there'd be angry psalms they'd be alright for kind of heavy metal if they had that kind of thing in ancient Hebrew times Um, so the psalms have in them Uh, A kind of full range of human emotion, from happiness to angst, uh, from sadness to joy. Uh, And because of all that, the Psalms are really down to earth. Uh, Reading the Psalms is like uh, looking into a mirror. Uh, We see ourselves and every aspect of our life and every aspect of God and his love and care for us. In the Psalms, God reveals a lot about what he's like and he describes the experience of living as a human being in a broken world. Doubt and faith, suffering and joy, defeat and uh, victory. Now, if you start reading the Psalms uh, from Psalm 1, when you arrive at Psalm 29, actually you come across a Psalm which is quite unlike anything that you've come across before. Uh, To begin with, it's entirely about praise to God. Now, uh, other Psalms do praise God, of course they do, but they tend to mix up praise with something else, like, I'm in big trouble, Lord, please help me, or... You are amazing, Lord. Show me how I should live to please and worship you. But Psalm 29 is pure praise. Nothing else but pure praise. It doesn't tell us to do anything, really, because the psalm itself is doing the only thing it's concerned about, and that's praising God, the King of all splendour. And whilst the psalms, all the psalms are poetry, This whole psalm is built on two key elements of Hebrew poetry. And really to get the best out of the psalms, you have to know something about Hebrew poetry. I'm no expert, so this is what I read. The first thing you have to know is that uh, Hebrew poems use a lot of repetition. Um, So in this psalm, the clearest example of repetition are the words, the Lord. The psalm only has 11 verses, but David uses the word, the Lord, about 18 times. In some parts of the psalm, they're in every line. When we get to the middle part of the psalm, we have the words, the voice of the Lord. Uh, Those words are repeated seven or so times in verses 3 to 9. So Hebrew poetry has a lot of repetition. And Hebrew poetry also has a lot of repetition. Parallelism. I have to practice saying that because it's one of those words you trip over in public if you're not very careful. Parallelism. Uh, did you do geometry at school? Um, when I went to school, parallelism was all about whether lines went in exactly the right direction or not. Uh, I didn't understand it then. I don't understand it now. And if you'd told me that it had something to do with poetry, which I hated, uh, I would have been even more confused. But Hebrew poetry well it's got lots of parallelism. Similar thoughts all going in the same direction. So our psalm begins with three parallel appeals to the angels to give glory to God. After these three appeals there's a fourth line that says the same thing but in slightly different words. So in the ESV it says Ascribe to the Lord you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendour of his holiness. And you'll find that kind of repetition and parallelism throughout the whole of Psalm 29. Now you might think that this repetition means this is boring. And when you add parallelism, saying the same thing again and again, you might think, well actually, this is very boring. And when you know it's poetry, poetry, uh, this is really very boring. And when you get to know that this is not just poetry, but it was written in Hebrew, that's a foreign language, somebody's had to translate it, you think, who reads stuff like this? And you know, we know, don't we, all this poetry, uh, parallelism, repetition, Hebrew, is like watching paint dry. This is life ebbing away kind of boring. But it isn't because this is the Word of God. And for me, there are two particular things which make it really exciting, even for me who never opened this text in his English literature exam. The first is that the psalm takes us on a journey from heaven to earth. We're in heaven in the opening verses. And it ends on earth in verse 11. And the second thing is the description of a terrific storm in verses 3 to 9. A storm that sweeps down over the whole, whole country from north to south. And I love thunderstorms. Uh, to appreciate this psalm, you have to be really put your, in your imagination with King David out. In the fields, watching the majesty of this ferocious storms. Uh, I don't know what it's been like in Rotherham, perhaps you've had a few storms over the last uh, uh, few weeks or so. Uh, You know, gathering on the mountains of Kimberworth, sweeping down over Clifton Park and then uh, dissipating over the wastelands of uh, Whiston and Aston and places like that. It's, uh, that's what it's like. Imagine that you are there with King David, watching the majesty of this storm, as he reminds himself that God is over the storm. He's controlling it, he's directing it, he is in and over the storm and all other natural phenomena. Now a preacher from a long time ago, his name is Charles Spurgeon. His language is a bit flowery, but he said this and it is beautiful. Just as Psalm 8 is to be read by moonlight when the stars are bright, as Psalm 19 needs the rays of the rising sun to bring out its beauty, so Psalm 29 is best rehearsed beneath the black wings of a tempest. By the glare of lightning or amid the dubious dust which heralds the war of the elements, the verses march to the tune of the thunderbolts. God is everywhere conspicuous, and all the earth is hushed by the majesty of God's presence. So let's have a look into this beautiful passage. There we are. Psalm 29 opens with two verses in which David calls on the heavenly beings, the angels, to praise God. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendour of holiness. Now this might seem a bit strange because glorifying God, praising him is what angels do. That's their job description. Uh, And they do it constantly, all the time. Surely, David, it's we human beings, not the angels who need to be urged to praise God. Uh, Hearing a human being urging the angels to glorify God, it seems a bit bizarre. So why does David do that? I I think he's seen the storm. He's overwhelmed with the splendour of God, revealed in the storm that he's just seen, Uh, and he feels that his praise, his praise even as the mighty King of Israel, even when joined to the praise of all God's people, just isn't enough. It's not sufficient. He needs help to praise God properly, and the whole of uh, the created beings must join in worship with him. And even then, the praise of God won't be enough. It won't be sufficient. It will be less than God actually deserves. Uh, but David's appeal to the angels tells us something significant about worship. Something that the angels already know, but something that we have to keep in mind because we so easily forget. See here in this psalm the praise of God has two elements. Uh, the first element of praise is ascribing glory. To him, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. We ascribe, we give glory to him, to our God, because that's what he deserves. That's his due. Uh, no one else deserves the praise and worship that we give to glorify him. In Isaiah 42 he tells us this, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to another to idols. And we must attribute to God all excellence and all might with our minds. We are to acknowledge his supreme worth, his splendour, his strength, all the glory that's due to him because of who he is. And then the second element of praise is uh, worship. Worship the Lord in the splendour of holiness. We show him reverence and adoration. Worship literally means uh, bowing down before him, prostrating ourselves before him. It it involves submitting our minds uh, uh, and our wills to his, recognising that in everything, our God is right. And if we disagree, actually, we're wrong. No ifs. No buts when you're dealing with God. He's right, and we're wrong if we don't agree with him. Uh, these two things, ascribing greatness and giving worship, belong together. And each of them is essential. The angels do these things naturally. It's a, a matter of course for them, but we have to learn to ascribe glory and worship him. If the glory of God is to change us as it should, and we're to worship him Uh, properly. And then in the uh, middle uh, section, splendour in the storm, uh, verses 3 to 9, it gives a description of the storm uh, and what a storm it is. Do you like storms? Thunder, lightning, driving winds, heavy rain, hail. um, Wow, if you do, it's not genetic. Uh, my mum used to hide under the settee, behind the settee and stuff when, when storms were on. She used to put on the light, turn everything off, and unplug everything. I don't quite know why she did that, but that's what my mum used to do. But I love them. I love thunderstorms. Dillis and I used to go on a holiday to a little seaside town called uh, Broadstairs on the Kent coast. It's very quiet. We stayed at a hotel. Uh, on a headland overlooking the bay and on a clear day sometimes on a clear night you could see across to France and at night I used to love watching the thunderstorms over France, Uh, it was great because they are over there and not over here Uh, but uh, sometimes they used to come across the channel and I would go out in the pouring rain in my cagoule with an umbrella uh, as the thunder and lightning and pouring rain just happened around me. It was awesome, absolutely awesome. And this is what Psalm 29 describes. It's a thunderstorm beginning in the Mediterranean Sea in the north, sweeping down over the length of Palestine and then disappearing over the desert to the south. Uh, Some commentators, they divide the Psalm into uh, the verses 3 to 9 into three parts to reflect the journey of the storm. So in verses 3 and 4 you've got the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. And they picture the storm as it gathers power over the Mediterranean before it comes ashore in all its fury. I take the words over the waters and over the mighty waters Uh, To mean the Mediterranean, some people think it just means the water drops collected in the atmosphere in the dark, uh, thunder clouds, water that will soon fall as rain. It's used that way in Genesis 1, isn't it, where God creates an expanse later called the sky to separate water from water, water in the atmosphere and water collected in the sea and the rivers and the lakes and the streams. Well, wherever it is, whether it's the Mediterranean or in storm clouds, the emphasis is on the voice of the Lord, the thunder which is over the waters, uh, but which David hears. And then in verses 5 to 7, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning the storm breaks, it moves down from Lebanon, Lebanon is mentioned twice in verses 5 and 6 and verse 6 also mentions a place called Sirion, that's another name for Mount Hermon if you're good at uh, Bible geography Uh, and our verses, they describe the damage to the cedars of Lebanon, you know in the ancient world the cedars of Lebanon were a symbol of great great strength Uh, but here, uh, these pictures of mighty endurance, they can't stand before the voice of the Lord in the storm. Uh, you can remember, I'm sure, storms in Britain that bring down even the strongest trees, Sherwood Forest, the Mighty Oaks, and the trees in Kew Gardens a few years ago that were, that were blown down though they'd stood for many years. Uh, this storm is so fierce... That the mountains uh, tremble uh, as it passes. The solid ground shakes beneath David's feet, whilst the lightning is like flames of fire that appear with the voice of the Lord. And then in verses 8 and 9, the verse of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare, and all in his temple cry, Glory! The storm dies away over the southern southern desert of Kadesh. You know, David and David's ancestors uh, spent a lot of time in the desert of Kadesh. It was where they wandered with Moses after the Lord punished them for their lack of faith because they failed to trust that he would take them safely into the promised land. The storm doesn't stop doesn't leave until it strips the forests bare and twists the oaks some translations, your translation here has uh, the voice of the Lord twist the oaks and makes the deer give birth, the storm is so powerful that it makes the animals give birth uh, prematurely and as the result of this majestic display, David says all in the temple cry glory uh, who is it that's in the temple whose cry of worship is this uh, glory is it the people who saw the storm with David the difficulty with that is that this is David speaking and although he prepared and planned for the temple he didn't actually build it it wasn't built until after he died it was his son Solomon who built the temple so David might be thinking ahead A completed temple thinking of God's people being overwhelmed with the glory of God and worshipping him there. It might refer to verse 1, the praise of the angels taking place in heaven. Well, you'll have to make your own mind up. But what's clear is uh, that the power of God displayed in the storm is so awesome that creation worships. And then we see that the main element of God's description of the storm is the voice of the Lord, repeated about seven times. Although David is describing the majesty of God revealed in the storm, his focus actually is not the thunder. That's only a poetic picture for the reality of the power of God's voice. And God's voice is infinitely more powerful than the storm. Uh, And the power of God's voice, you know, is uh, an important theme uh, from the beginning to the end of the whole Bible. Uh, Think of the power of God's voice in creation. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, the first book in the Bible, the first chapter, uh, begins with God speaking. God says, let there be. And it was so. Uh, And as a result of the voice of God, creation comes into being and God's creation is good, in fact he's very good Uh, when you look into the night sky and you see the stars, if you don't have all this light blocking them out, you do see something of the splendour of our creator king but do you realise that you have the splendour of our creator king in everyday life in the things that we take for granted, do you realize that God thought of the color blue? There wasn't blue in the beginning, He thought that color up. Uh, God thought of blue and all the other colors. Isn't that cool? Uh, I, I look at the flowers on East Boughtry Road as I, I, I drove in, they're just magnificent, they're just glorious. And my wife, because I don't do gardening, my wife had a pack of wild flower seeds that were all supposed to be blue in color, and she sprinkled them in our garden. We can't tell which are weeds and which are flowers, but there we are, and they've grown and they're all a kind of pale blue color, but they're not all one shade of pale blue. There are millions of just different shades of blue. It's amazing. Our God created the colors. He created flavors. He created an apple to taste like apples, and oranges to taste like oranges, and tea to taste like tea, coffee to taste like coffee, and all the subtle flavours in between. For me, Costa Coffee is different to Starbucks Coffee. Uh, it's different from Fitzwilliam and Brown Coffee, which is different from Nomad Coffee, which I was drinking last week, and very nice as well. All that is God's doing. Every aspect of creation, from the largest galaxy, To the tiniest burst of flavour in food or drink radiates the glory of Almighty God. And they're not created as ends in themselves. They're given to us so that we might recognise Him in everything. And that recognising Him in everything might lead us to worship. When we take a bite of food, that should spark worship in us. When we know the warmth of a a loving hug, that should create worship in us. When we feel the warmth of our sun on our faces, that should create worship in us. When we smell the freshness after the rain, that should create worship in our hearts. The goodness and the beauty of creation is not designed to declare itself. It's a signpost pointing to the King of Splendour. That's why David watched the psalm saw the God who created it, heard the power of his voice and he worshipped. And the power of God's voice is also revealed as in grace. He calls to draw sinners to himself. People like me, who were dead in trespasses and sins, are given new life. That flowery speaking pastor, Charles Spurgeon, read about the voice of God breaking the great cedars of Lebanon and he wrote this the gospel of Jesus has dominion over the most inaccessible of mortals and when the Lord sends the word it breaks hearts far stouter than cedars. He read about the lightning and he said this flames of fire attended the voice of God in the gospel illuminating and melting the hearts of men by these he consumes our lusts and kindles in us a holy flame of ever inspiring love and devotion. Spurgeon saw the progress of the storm and he said, This low lying plains must hear the voice of God as well as the lofty mountains. The poor as well as the mighty must acknowledge the glory of the Lord. Bit flowery. But the hardest of human hearts cannot withstand the power of God's word when he speaks directly and then in the final two verses we're reminded of the voice of God in judgment, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood the Lord is enthroned as king forever, the Lord gives strength to his people, the Lord blesses his people with peace the storm has passed But God remains enthroned as King of the universe. The earth may have been shaken. The people who live on the earth may have been shaken. But God is not shaken. He is as calmly in control as ever he was and is and will be. And there's peace for those of us who are is. We have no need to fear. Final verses They reminded me of God appearing to Elijah after he fled into the desert because he was afraid of Ahab and Jezebel had threatened to kill him. He was exhausted, he was emotionally drained and God told him, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. And Elijah did what he was told but he, he kind of hid himself in a cave Uh, And then uh, the account says this, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, uh, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard the gentle whisper, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out from the cave where he had been hiding and he met with God. That's what it's like as you come to the end of Psalm 29. The storm has passed by and what remains is God himself. As peaceful, as in control, as he's always been, as he always will be. But we are reminded too of the voice of God in judgment because we're told that God sits enthroned over the flood. Uh, Floods are perfectly natural uh, after storms, aren't they? A couple of years ago there was lots of rain in Sheffield and Rotherham and Doncaster was flooded because that's where it all ended up and it's a bit low-lying. So after very heavy storms you do get flooding of a kind of flooding perhaps that Jesus was thinking about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount uh, when he mentioned the wise and foolish builders. You know the story, the rain's falling, the floods come up and they destroy the house of the man who built on sand. He didn't have a a good foundation. But there's more to this picture of God sitting enthroned over the flood. Uh, I understand that in the original language the word used for flood here is used in only one other place in the Old Testament and that's in the account of the flood in the time of Noah where God judged the wickedness of the people on the earth and the people at the time of David those who heard him speak this psalm, those who read uh, what he'd written would hear this word for flood And they would be reminded of that great judgment. In in fact, theologians say that verse 10 makes this association with the flood in Noah's day even clearer because where it says the Lord sits enthroned over the flood should actually be translated the Lord sat enthroned over the flood. And David looks and he sees the similarity between the Genesis flood as a past event over which God was sovereign and the storm as a present experience over which God is sovereign. What it means is this, the Lord sat enthroned over the Genesis flood, he continues to be enthroned and he will be enthroned forever and the last part of our psalm speaks of the voice of God in judgment it's telling us that a final uh, storm of judgment is coming it's a warning to people to get ready using the thunderstorm as a powerful image and the only people who will be ready for the judgment are the people of God because God gives his people strength and he blesses them with peace peace it's a beautiful word you know in our time there is war and strife and violence as a reality all around us in our towns in our country in our world and our longing for peace and safety is more than empty words you know we long for peace in our homes at work, in our town, in our country in our world but the Bible, God's word makes it clear that peaceful relationships between human beings important as they are are not nearly so important as peace with God naturally as we are born we don't have peace with God Isaiah tells us that our iniquities, our sin have separated us from our God. Our sins have hidden his face from us. He won't hear us. We're God's enemies. We're rebellious, hostile. We deserve nothing but condemnation. But God's made a way so there's no condemnation for us. Indeed God has made a way to love us. And to love us with a love that's so powerful that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. And that peace with God is the foundation of peace with one another peace you know the overwhelming thing that's uh, struck me about Rotherham Evangelical Church is the real sense of authentic peace that comes from unity and love that you have for one another it's very very precious never ever take it for granted. Sadly, you will not find that peace in every church. Sadly, perhaps, you won't find it in many churches. The peace and unity that you have is a real great blessing. It's a peace that is God-honouring. It's a peace that is Christ-exalting. And if you don't, You should thank God for it. You should cherish it. You should guard it. You should protect it. You should pray. Long may it continue. And your unity and peace is God's witness to the world that you are his people here in Rotherham. But perhaps there's someone who doesn't know that peace with God themselves. Personally, you don't know the joy and blessing of having peace with God. You don't know the joy and blessing of living in God's kingdom under God's rule, under his rule and blessing. Even in the storms that batter your life, you can know peace with God. In the Old Testament, the time of David, peace came Uh, peace with God came through a system of animal sacrifices. That's finished. Today, do you remember the words of the angels to the shepherds that night when they were announcing the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests no more animal sacrifices Jesus is the sacrifice that brings us peace Jesus God the Son the Prince of Peace became a human being so that through his life and his sacrificial death through his resurrection and ascension and reign we might know the reality of peace with almighty God as we believe on him as we trust him as we trust ourselves and our lives to him as we trust the prince of peace the one who is the king of all splendour for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no